100,000, a record number for a 12-month period, 100,000 drug overdose deaths in our country. So then it became this chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. Was it the pain or was it the addiction that came first? And how do you, you can't treat them separately. But on a macro level, you know, when you're looking at this, who is to blame? It comes down to pharmaceutical companies who are really pushing this. Did you know that people with opioid use disorder are 13 times more likely to die by suicide? It is a sad but important topic that we'll also talk about in this episode. Hey there, news peelers. Today is January 28, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, the societal cost of the opioid crisis reached a record last year, 100,306 overdose deaths in the 12-month period through April 2021. This is a 29% increase over the previous 12-month period. And according to a chart from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, a chart which we have posted on the Peel.News website in our public health podcast series, national drug overdose deaths involving any opioid in 2019 was 49,860. This is less than half of the record that was reached last year, meaning that the number doubled in just two years. The rising death toll is attributed to the increased availability of potent drugs on the streets, loss of access to treatment during the COVID-19 pandemic, which in turn contributed to higher incidence of mental health problems. To better understand the opioid pandemic, and yes, it is a pandemic, we spoke with Professor Golnaz Agahi of the University of Massachusetts Global School of Social Work. She tells the history of America's opioid crisis from an eyewitness perspective. She has been there from the very beginning, working with opioid users since the late 1990s. Professor Agahi has over 20 years of expertise in alcohol and drug prevention and treatment, as well as prevention of suicide, a subject she feels quite passionately about. She received her doctorate from the University of Southern California School of Social Work and holds dual masters in social work and public health. To learn more about Professor Agahi and her many projects, presentations, and publications, visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Agahi and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast.
Professor Agahi, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So drug overdose deaths in the U.S. had a record high last year, 100,000. Before we discuss how we got here, I want to understand the crisis first. Here's a question that is rudimentary for you. You are an expert, but it's not for me. How does overdose occur anyway? Good question. Um, so how does overdose occur? So, you know, overdose is actually the leading cause of injury and death in the United States. Uh, the leading based cause? On, wow. Yeah, based on CDC, Center of Disease Control. And usually when we talk about drug overdose, we use the broad definition of overdose. So the broad definition is when you have too much drug or alcohol or medication or pill that takes over your, um, that more than your body could handle. Um, so I always use this analogy because more, more, more people can associate with drinking alcohol. So um, I at some point with that. Right. Yeah. You know, those <laughs> yeah. good old college days, right? Good old college days. Yeah. Um, so when, when someone drinks so too much, what happens? We tend to get nauseous. Our body basically reacts, you know, and you throw up, you usually, you know, have a blackout or no memory of the situation. So that's usually a general um, experience that one has is now severe overdose. But to get blackout, if I may interrupt you for a moment, you really have to push it. Yeah, you gotta drink quite a bit. Yeah, because the the general is usually the vomiting that happens, right? Exactly. So that's what most people know, and they don't consider that overdose. They'll say, "Hey, I just drank too much." I'm, you know. But when with this data that's coming out, I'm so you're really saying that vomiting is form of overdose? It is. It is. Oh wow! Cause, okay. Because your body is taking basically saying, "Oh, I can't handle this anymore. I need to get rid of it," so to speak. In the I lamest see. term, we're, we're talking about. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's when you talk about overdose, you have these kind of phases. So, you know, in the field of addiction, when we are, you know, when we ask clients if they've ever overdosed, we want it kind of, we ask them to like the level of overdose. So is it, have you have ever thrown up? Have you ever had a blackout? Have you had a memory loss? Have you ever had seizures um, post drinking or using drugs? Now, when we look at severe overdose, what we're talking about is that this individual has, you know, drank or used drugs to the extent where they've lost consciousness, they've stopped breathing, um, their skin, skin turns blue, they collapse, they can't be woke, waken up, they have a heart attack, uh, there's convulsion, and obviously to the extent where it could lead to either accidental um or intentional death, depending on what was the purpose of the use. Um, do people that OD, do they know that when they come to you, do they know that this was an uh, overdose event or uh, do they just think something went wrong? Do you sift that out by asking questions? So, that's another good question. Do they know <laughs> they overdose? Right? You, you got good questions there. Um, <laughs> um, that's a really, and it's it's for some individuals, they may not be aware of it. They just said, oh, I just drank a little too much. That's it. But they don't recognize that, or I use a little drugs. Um, they don't, may not notice it. They may not recognize it as OD. So some of that is educational. But the other component to this, and there is association with what we call overdose and building tolerance to substances. And that's a really critical point where when I say building tolerance is that you need more of that substance to feel you that you get that euphoric feeling. Okay. So some people oh, kind say, of like, you know, when you're younger, you drink a lot of alcohol. Now you need more alcohol to get drunk. Right. When you get older, you got kids, you're not drinking that much. Half a glass of wine gets you drunk. Is that, did, did I sum that up with respect to? Well, I, I would rephrase that by saying, maybe if you start with just a shot of tequila, you just need the, a bottle of tequila now to feel the same. Wow. I can't right? remember the Yeah, yeah. I and particularly when we're talking about opioids, the reason why overdose is 
there's a higher correlation between overdose and heroin or opioids is because op this drug in particular has, you build a higher tolerance to it very quickly. Where maybe with drinking alcohol, you may need four or five years of drinking to get to that one bottle of tequila. You know, there's a saying in the field of, of addiction or recovery we talk about with opiates chasing the white dragon. That chasing the white dragon. Right. And what it is, is this re reference to, you know, more or less smoking um, opium where, you, you know, there's the smoke. And the first experience one has is, is so, you, know, you get this amazing high, so to speak, um, euphoric. Not, I don't speak from personal experience. This is what I hear from clients, just to be clear. <laughs> um, that you, and your body builds tolerance very quickly to that. So for you to feel that same high, you're going to need more and more and higher level of dosage to obtain that high. And so for individuals, it's very quickly, it's very common to overdose on opium in particular because of this quick tolerance that the body builds where people are like, well, you know, again, 0.5 gram was sufficient. They need like one gram and the body just can't handle it. So that leads to unconsciousness, seizures, and possible death. 0.1 gram versus 0.5 gram. Those numbers lead me to my next question. 0.1 gram or 0.5 gram of what? What are opioids? You know, so they come in many forms, right? So what we're more mostly familiar with and what this really the crisis in the U.S. started with was not heroin per se, is what we started with was the pain medication. So um, pain meds that have opioid, opioids in them. So we're talking about like um, oxycodone, which was very, very popular at one point. Was that over the counter at some point? No, it never no, no. was over the counter. Okay. Um, I, th I think there, there are other, like there was, I don't know, um, there was a drug for like um, diets mm -hmm. that had actually some uh, methamphetamine in it. This is many years, Fenfen, I think it was called. That was, and okay. the FDA removed it. There's cough syrups that has um, DXM in it that now is locked up because kids were picking those up and getting high, but Sudafed oh, is locked up. Now I can't get Sudafed anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is to do because to reduce access to adolescents who were using these over the counter medication for a quick high. And but, those fall uh, into the category of opioids. No, 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 no. I'm oh, digressing. Okay. I'm just, it's kind of a digression. So coming back and focusing because I, I could go so many different tangents. <laughs> I know. I know. That's a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's very exciting to talk about. There, well, I know, and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge. So look, going back to opioids. Right. So, um, so it's, it's, we're talking about, you know, prescription medication, painkillers, right? But also, and then often what happened, and exactly with the crisis that we are now experiencing here in the U.S., um, where basically you had, Drug, these pain meds that were given out like candy by um, pharmaceutical companies, by physicians. And at that time, they were kind of considered the miracle drug. You have pain, no problem. Here you go. Take, take this um, pain med. So mm -hmm. the hydrocodons, the methadones, the oxycodons that were given out. And what we realized within years that these are very addictive and individuals that were on these pain, pain meds um, were actually developing addiction to these drugs. And once this was recognized and this became like more of a public health urgency or crisis, we turned around and said, okay, you can't give pain meds anymore to people. You can't be given any like candy. This needs to be more control. You need to be determined. What's the reason? What's the purpose for this? Well, you pull this drug from someone immediately, kind of cold turkey, people are going to try to find how to go about obtaining it. And so what happened is people start going to what, you know, internet and streets to obtain it. And because not necessarily you can't find pain meds, we now saw a change to the format of drug use where historically it was a lot of these prescription drugs. People were getting it from their doctors or doctor shopping. They were buying it online. Um, they were selling their pain meds on the street because of lack of access. 
now individuals change that over to fentanyl. So in the recent years, the severe um, crisis or consider really a, a pandemic uh, in the U.S. in particular with the overdose and death is specifically in reference to fentanyl, which is a different type of opioid. Um, you know, it's driven from that where people are using, um, injecting in particular to feel the same high to help with pain or because of their addiction. With respect to um, doctor shopping, have there been some changes uh, in uh, prescription uh, laws uh, throughout the country that they can actually track? Uh, Absolutely. So there is a what software, is a, da- a database where um, physicians physicians can go on and they could look at, you know, they put in clients' information and they could track when was the last prescription, um, you know, provided to the client, what dosage, um, how much and so forth. So there is a tracking system now to monitor that process. Is that and nationwide? Most, it's nationwide. Yes. Oh, yes. that's a, that's a great thing, right? Yeah. I, I know that um, when I worked in our addiction medicine department, our um, addiction physician would go into this database to review patients and not only just for um, opioids, but also another common drug that's associated um, people tend to abuse is benzos like Xanax and Valium. Um, so you could track these medications to see where people are getting it, how they're getting it, how often they get it. And you know, now nowadays, because there's a lot more restrictions, if someone comes to the clinic and says, oh, I lost my medication, and you see there's a pattern that keeps saying they've lost their medication, the, pharmacy, the pharmacies will put a stop and say, sorry, we're not gonna be able to prescribe. You have to come back in 10 days to get another um, screen. But unfortunately, this these, um, we generally, as a nation, we tend to be reactive versus proactive. These are policies that have been built for pharmaceutical companies and HMOs and medical facilities in response to the abuse of opioids. So they're playing catch up otherwise. Right. CDC you know, has a whole information about it, talking about the um, prescription drug monitoring program. So that's kind of the general term they use, PDMP. Uh, and basically it continues to um, monitor all the prescriptions across. I know we do like in the state of California. I, I honestly don't know if it's in reference to, uh, you know, be monitored in other states. COVID is 900,000 deaths, unfortunately, so far. We know that number and we know that um, overdose deaths last year reached 100,000. What perhaps you could help me with it a little bit is to compare these OD deaths last year to other major diseases like, I don't know, um, cancer, heart failure. Where, where does OD, sort of the opioids crisis, uh, compare? Where does it stand with respect to those? In December, um, just the te- recent December 2020, CDC issued you mean a health 2020 alert. 2020 or 2021? Oh, I'm sorry, in December of 2020. So about a year, about a year ago. Okay. Um, CDC actually issued a health alert now advisory to the public health field, to the medical field, and others saying, hey, we're seeing this increase in drug overdose. Um, this is a soaring really high to a record high that we haven't seen before since we started monitoring the, you know, this overdose for two decades. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a red flag. Please be um, aware of this, be cognizant of education, psychoeducation and trainings and services and providing, you know, care to, yeah. to clients. <clears throat> uh, Professor Agahi, how do we position the overdose deaths, this crisis of opioids against other diseases in America. For example, 900,000 is the death toll, unfortunately, from COVID-19. I don't know. How about diabetes, heart failure, um, cancer? How How does this opioid crisis stack up against them? You know, that's a really good question, um, Adel, because when we look at overdose and CDC has this beautiful chart that they put out, um, looking, breaking down by age group mm-hmm. and um, cause of death. 
And in the recent data that they put out, as they looked at drug overdose in the, in the last basically year or two, and now drug overdose surpasses death from car crashes, guns, and even flu and pneumonia. The, wow. the total is actually closer to that of diabetes, which is the nation's number seven cause of death. Wow. So this puts opioids right up there, number seven, a major. Right. Right. Which is why CDC and many of the professional networks, you know, American Public Health Association and, um, you know, our attorney general has recognized and saying this, we are in a pandemic with the drug overdose. Why don't we take a short break here and then talk about the history of this opioids pandemic. Did you know there was no controversy for the rubella and polio vaccines? Imagine that, no vaccine controversy. Did you know that during the Spanish flu a century ago, you didn't need mandates for Americans to wear masks. They wore them out of fear. Do you know why the CDC has so little power in comparison to, say, the FDA or OSHA, which are also federal agencies. Do you know why there's still no cure for Alzheimer's disease? To listen to these podcast conversations, just click the link for public health series in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Agahi. Professor Agahi, has the COVID-19 pandemic made the opioid crisis worse? Or is it the case that the crisis, the opioid crisis, would have gotten worse on its own anyway? I definitely think COVID-19 has exacerbated the situation. Um, the reason why from, from, you know, from our perspective, from a public health and social work perspective, you know, with my background being both um, clinical social work and public health is what we're seeing is these individuals who under normal circumstance would be able to go into treatment facilities and be able to get support to address their addiction due to COVID became more isolated. And due to this increase in isolation and lack of support and limit, limit, limited access to providers or peers, this has definitely exacerbated um, this substance use crisis and which has led to overdose. And I would say it's, it's been a huge challenge because where, and I could only speak again here in California with the drug um, treatment facilities that I work with where clients were used to be able to come in and access care right then and there mm -hmm. into a treatment facility, that's no longer an option. And due to COVID, many people lost insurance and services. So they weren't able to utilize treatment facilities where people used to go into AA meetings and drop in and be able to obtain that kind of support. And that no longer was available for a time being. Not everyone have access to, you know, online support services. So that has definitely exacerbated the situation and Defender's research and um, the kind of the world of academia indicates that definitely has seen why we've seen this kind of um, exponential like, jump. Yeah. Um, is due to the isolation, just kind of, kind of just as is associated with suicide. And I know we'll talk about um, yeah, like yeah. a little bit, talk about suicide later. But I, I know because there's definitely a correlation between overdose and suicide. I remember, uh, well, let me say it this way. I remember that I had not heard the term opioids back in the early, I don't know, 2000s, late 1990s. Um, we talked about a little bit about pain management, but how did it get all started? Is that it? Is that the story? Pain management? So, you know, I, I don't want to say pain management per se. And maybe I have to give a little historical background. So when you look at um, drug use over time in, in our nation, overall, um, th there's actually a um, 
SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, does monitor substance use over, over the past few decades. And substance use generally has gone down in our nation. It has gone down, actually. Overall. overall. Okay. Though, though in the recent years, we've seen a spike in marijuana, which is a different story for a different time. Yeah. We're seeing psychosis associated with that. Um, but, but also what I would say in the past you know, two and a half, three decades that I've been working in the field, there is, there's these patterns and trends we see with substances where, you know, 80s, cocaine was a drug, you know, very popular. Then, you know, in the 90s, early 90s, then it became meth, um, became the drug. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would say, you know, mid, you know, in the 2000s, what we start seeing is this opiate, opioids. And this was very prevalent before there was research, before the academia started talking about this, before the data came out. Because, as you know, data and statistics lag a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but having worked in the field of substance use, I started, and many of us who were working as clinicians in the field, we started seeing this change where we were seeing clients coming in, you know, initially, majority of our clients were alcohol. Then, you know, then we saw alcohol and meth. Then in, I would say in the 2000s, we started seeing the this larger population coming in with opioid abuse, specifically with prescription drug use. In particular, we started seeing this within uh, our what we call our TAY population, transitional age youth, which is like the 18 to 25. So this pattern started showing up in the clinic where what is going on with these with these young people that are coming with opioid. And what we started seeing is often that's when pharmaceutical companies were really pushing the pain meds, you know, again, the miracle drug to, you know, relieve all, all problems where these young individuals were coming in hooked on that pain med. And so we had to like, in in a clinical thing, we have to actually create new program and interventions just for this younger population who was coming in, what I would call hooked on drugs. And so we had to work with our pain management department to say, what are some other options here? Because they can't be taking these pain meds. They now have become addicted to it based on what we call DSM-5 diagnosis of building tolerance and the withdrawals that we're experiencing with opioids. So what other options are there for these individuals? And that's where the challenge lies. And I would say the other problem or difficulty with this is that we are one of the only few developed nations that pharmaceutical companies could prescribe or promote an advocate, not prescribe, but promote directly to the consumers. Where, you know, if you're sitting at home watching a late night show, Every other advertisement is about some kind of drug, right? That that's yeah. not a, you know that's not something that's a viable option like in Europe. You can't just directly advertise. So, a well, lot of pain our- meds are being advertised as opioids and uh, pain management advertised on TV and radio back then. Historically, yeah, yeah, okay. Historically, there there were some of that that was happening, and then you had the pharmaceutical companies that were going directly to physicians. And promoting this, right? They were really pushing this. Um, and now, again, being a reactive nation, most most um, physician providers and the, the with you know that groups do not allow for pharmaceutical companies to come and directly advertise or you know basically provide meals or. Um, to them or, you know, what, you know, take treat, treat the staff, you know, the nurses and all of that. Right. Yeah, where it was lunch, historically breakfast. very common. Yeah. Um, now that's yeah. not an option. And even if you're presenting at conferences now, you know, for the past couple of decades now, we have to, if we're presenting something, we have to say if there's a conflict of interest with any pharmaceutical companies, because they want to know if there's a potential bias or not that in presenting our data and presenting our information. So going back to your question, how bad this got, this got really bad. I would say starting in the 2000s when we start seeing this problem and a lot of it had to do with how the opioids were specifically the pain meds were being pushed down people's throat and to the medical field as the miracle drug to treat it all. Where 
most of your patients in, in this opioid category that we're talking about now, um, those to whom pain management drugs were prescribed, uh, sort of legit, and they had become hooked? Or was there also a group, I don't know, however size, whatever percentage, that actually went out and got these pain meds for recreational purposes? I would say, again, based on research that's available, majority of this individuals um, was the prescription meds that became a problem. Prescription meds. Because um, heroin, heroin has always been there. And there's always been a portion of the population that, you know, dabbles with drugs and they get into heroin. Um, mm-hmm. But that never was what I would call um, the larger group of people coming into recovery. Generally, when people are in recovery, they're coming in. Alcohol was the first drug of choice. You see most commonly followed by meth, followed by opioids, right? Yeah, when, yeah. Because of this crisis that kind of started in early 2000, late 1990s, we saw this change in recovery where people were coming in, not hooked on heroin, hooked on prescription drugs. So I'll just, I'll just be blunt with this next question. Who's to blame? Good question. So who, who is to blame? Um, who are to blame, I guess. <laughs> Good. So, you know, I, I mean, obviously, there's not a single person to blame. I mean, I, I like to look at this both on a, on a, when you're looking at saying where the problem lies or how do we solve this problem? From a public health perspective, we don't look at a situation and say, well, who's to blame? But we look at a, the different dimensions associated with an individual and how these different layers influence a person to use drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So what we call on a micro level, you have the individual themselves. So, you know, financial constraints, um, you know, biological reasons, environmental reasons that one gets into these factors. But on a macro level, you know, when you're looking at this, who is to blame? It comes down to pharmaceutical companies who are really pushing this. And I, I use the analogy often um, with in this, in this situation is, you know, in the 80s um, and, and 90s, the tobacco industry, right? The tobacco industry for years promoted smoking. They advertised it. You could go to a vending machine and get tobacco. You know, there was advertisement on TV about smoking. Um, and so the tobacco companies know the um, ill effects of smoking. Correct, but it never yeah. was really disclosed that way until yeah. it was a whistleblower, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we saw, and there were all these individuals, um, lawsuits against the tobacco industry, but it really, there was a master settlement in 1998 that uh, they call it the tobacco master settlement that originally was between four largest tobacco companies and 46 states. And it was a large okay. lawsuit that quite a bit of funding was allocated to these states to be used for tobacco prevention due to the consequences. And I kind of see the industry moving that way and there may be down the road. And obviously this was years in the making that we had that master settlement. Um, We may see something like that with the opioid crisis because right now what you're seeing right now are just individual um, lawsuits that are occurring. So there was a, just not too long ago, um, in the last six months, we've had like a jury in New York that found Tiva Pharmaceutical Company liable for fueling the nation's deadly opioid um, pandemic. The verdict basically kind of said, hey, this the industry is accountable for this epidemic. And you are, you're the ones who are pushing it. Purdue Pharma was another one. A big one. That, and, you know, Dr. Algahi, uh, do you, do we know whether or not the pharma industry, the alleged culprits that we're discussing right now, do we know whether or not at some point they actually came to realize the harm of these pain management uh, drugs and they just continued on anyway, selling them? Were they aware of it, similar to the tobacco analogy, that example you're sharing with me? It hasn't been disclosed, I'm sure, mm-hmm. down the road. There will be disclosure, but I'm sure there were, they did studies and there were findings that indicated. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes money speaks louder than public health. Needs. 
I think most of the time, a lot of times, um, you know, pain management clinics proliferated in the last decade. Uh, <laughs> I know my friends and even I were getting calls about investing in these. Uh, and for some reason, California has a lot of them. Maybe it's the weather, maybe um, uh, desire to just come out West. Uh, do they play a part in this or they, are they just, uh, you know, a byproduct of this, this, this pandemic, the opioid pandemic? Um, I, I would say that's a really good question. And, and, you know, um, and, and working with, at least with pain management, um, clinics that I work with, they would see themselves as byproducts, so to speak. Of, of this pandemic where they initially people were going in for pain where they thought they were doing the right thing um, by providing these pain ma um, management programs and then seeing, oh, there are consequences. But I want to say with pain management also, at least the ones that I've worked with, it's not just about providing the medication. So often with pain management clinics, the ones, again, that I have experience working with, it's a combination of medication management, but also cognitive behavioral therapy to address the pain. So, and what's shown to be research-wise effective is that this combination is helps individuals with pain management and working through their pain. But there are pain management clinics that pop left and right, really, again, passing medication as the solution to these issues. I, I don't want to say, you know, it, I don't want to say that again, right for right or wrong. It may not, maybe because they didn't have the information, they didn't have the education, they didn't have the um, the knowledge at the time. But definitely, I have to say that in recent years, we've definitely seen most pain management clinics have changed their way, and they're now doing more partnership and collaboration actually with addiction medicine, because that's another challenge. Where that's a positive move. Right. Absolutely. And we're seeing yeah. more of this multidisciplinary approach to addressing things because where in the past, pain management would send the, the clients over to addiction medicine, say, say, this person has an addiction, you fix the addiction. And then be, once they're sober, then we could address their pain. And <laughs> an addiction medicine would say, um, this person is in a lot of pain. We can address their addiction without addressing the pain. So then it became this chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. Was it the pain or was it the addiction that came first? And how do you, you can't treat them separately? Yeah. And so now you're seeing this merger of, 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 of um, different philosophy of treating individuals, but not just treating the, the, the symptom, but treating the person as a whole. And I would say that's a positive, positive thing that has come out of this, where we're seeing more partnership and collaboration to address an individual, um, not just looking at the addiction, not just looking at the pain, not only just looking at the mental health issue, but looking at how these different um, components come together to, to address the person as a whole. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the relation between what we were just talking about, opioid addiction and suicide. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Agahi, how is suicide related to the opioid crisis? And I got to tell you, this is this is really sad. This this really is weighs heavy. You know, it I am very passionate about suicide prevention. And I do believe, and I do a lot of work, and then I do national and, and statewide trainings and education around suicide prevention. Um, 
because I do strongly believe from a public health perspective, it is preventable. No, we can't prevent every single suicide, right? But mm-hmm. there's plenty of signs and symptoms and warning signs that we could recognize and work with individuals who are crying for help, so to speak, and when in relation to suicide. And there's definitely a high correlation between substance use, mental health disorder, and suicide. And so when you look at, when you look at the data, there's research and after research that says, yes, substance use, in particular, um, opioids, there's this very, and alcohol, they have very high correlation to suicide. And one of the main reasons that, that we say alcohol and, and drugs in general have this higher correlation with suicide is because when you're under the influence, you kind of, you're not thinking kind of, you're not coherent necessarily. You don't kind of, you have a moment of, I don't give a bleep, so to speak. So it, it allows people to make some rash decisions that under normal circumstance, they probably would not. So like a study that came out in 2017, looked at people who misuse prescription opioids. And what they looked, saw is 40 to 60% of these individuals were more likely to have suicide thoughts. 40 to 60%? That misuse and uh, abuse prescription. Yeah. So the more suicide wow. thoughts, when it's not addressed, if you're not screening and assessing for this, you know, if you kind of sit there and you, you're constantly, I call it like you're stuck in a black hole, right? And these thoughts are going through your head over and over again, and you're abusing drugs, which is not allowing you to think coherently, could only lead to individuals, um, more what I call suicide ideation, if not addressed, could lead to suicide attempts which could then lead to completion of suicide. Is that because opioids cause depression? Uh, why is that? It's, it's again, it's because it's kind of, um, you're not thinking coherently. You're not, you know, you're it, it kind of, it could definitely exacerbate the mental illness aspect. Um, people feeling hopeless, helpless, feeling this, they have no, nothing left for them feeling more isolated. So these are all various factors associated with it. Do we know if opioids has suffered from a higher suicide rate than let's say some of your earlier examples, you were talking about cocaine um, was all the rage in the 1980s or or meth uh, in the 1990s. Do we know if opioid has a higher suicide rate? Yes. Again, because opioids. Yes, as in, opioids, yes, it does have a higher. Yeah, it does. And the reason specifically opioids, because of the um, high, the, the likelihood of a higher rate of overdose with opioids versus other drugs. So like actually a study, um, another study found that that suicide involving opioid use was more than 40% in 2017. Wow. So. And there was another study that said actually people who with opioid use disorder are 13 times more likely than those who do not have that disorder to die by suicide. You mentioned just a few seconds ago, overdose. Overdose from what I gleaned from our earlier segment is an accidental event versus suicide is an intentional sort of process, right? right? And so the overdose can be intentional with oh, the wow. purpose of wanting to kill yourself. So generally overdose tends to be accidental. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't use alcohol or drugs to kill yourself. However, we do have um, a group of individuals who actually use drugs with the intention of killing themselves. So, um, you know, when we look at suicide, the top three reasons how people go about methodology, method to killing themselves, you know, after firearm, um, it's firearm, suffocation, and then um, another most common one is prescription drugs or drugs to, um, to assist them with killing themselves. 
So with this data and research, this is saying, hey, we recognize that with substance use, piece, there are a group of individuals who use alcohol or drugs, in particular opioids, that is showing this high correlation of substance use with the intention of wanting to kill themselves. I have another question about this, uh, and I apologize I'm belaboring this because it's both fascinating and extremely sad. Do we know what percentage of the 100,000 overdose deaths that we just talked about, we open our conversation with, uh, is attributed to suicide OD, or do we not know that number? Does it does it sort of fall into forty to sixty percent that you were talking about? Yeah, it's about? kind of it's a range. It's mm-hmm. a range. I could say um, that now some of it could be again accidental overdose that led to their death, or it was intentional. And they again, there's different studies, and again, they're depending on the methodology. This is why we have this range of, you know. Of um, specifically, is, is it suicide? Because if it is suicide, you know, based on overdose, that was very, like you said, very intentional. And sometimes that's not very clear. I so see. we're looking at death certificates. You know, you have to have all the factors in place and confirm that this is truly was, was this accidental or was it truly intentional? From and the way so you're describing this, from, from the way you're describing this, that's very hard to ascertain to see whether or not an OD was actually a suicide or just an accidental event, uh, like a person just went too far. Yeah, and and the factors associated with it is, you know, looking at prior history, prior suicide attempts, because if someone has had more attempts, obviously it um, puts them at higher risk for completion of suicide. If there's a suicide note, are there other factors associated to determine that? Is there... A racial or ethnic element to opioid and opioid crisis? Yes, that's, um, it's, there is not only just, there's, so there's a little mixture of combination of things, right? There's definitely, um, when we're looking at breaking it down by ethnicity, and in particular with this whole recent last two, um, two years with the whole crisis, the 2019, um, 2020, what we've seen in, in particular with the fentanyl, right, mm-hmm. which is the illicit manufactured fentanyl involving overdose death. What we've seen, most of the fentanyl-involved death were among males. So, and this is just general in the field of substance abuse. Men, men there's more men in treatment and more men reporting substance use than females. Mm-hmm. So this trend definitely is consistent with what we see nationally. Um, with opioids that is generally more male than female. And in particular with fentanyl overdose in the past two years, when um, the CDC data that came out, it noted that about 66% were white. 60. Wow. That's, that's a big majority. Over over 50%. Yeah. With the second largest group following that was um, black, non-Hispanic. And there's also seems to be a geographic element, for example, Ohio and let's say West Virginia. And these are just some states come to mind. I, I don't have a particular order here. Uh, are experiencing more of uh, the sort of the blow, the brunt of the opioid crisis than other states, correct? Is that- yes, yes. There's definitely, there's definitely, you know, West Virginia, Ohio, and those are also states where you've seen the lawsuits against um Farm like CVS and Walgreens, and there's mm-hmm. settlements because um, the state has found the far- these pharmacies negligent in um, prescribing and providing um, opioids. So definitely see it more often in those states. Not to minimize that this is uh, this is an epidemic. So it's across all the states we're seeing this increase in opioid overdose. But definitely some of those um, state Midwest states have seen the brunt of. Um, of this is there a reason for this racial disparity that uh, white males are more uh, are a larger portion of the victims of, of this crisis or participants i guess whatever that term is uh, is there a cost factor is there access access factor um, i'm just guessing here um are there studies on that there, there's studies that actually, so this is, it gets a little complicated because I don't want the focus just to be on the white males. Um, okay. Because there are also, 
So when you look at when is when you look at um, overall, you see white males at, at being the high risk, right? Mm-hmm. And when you look at um, even in the context of suicide, we say the high risk population generally are white male, um, and the age is for in the forty five to sixty five. That's what we consider what we consider high risk. And if they're alone, separated, divorced, um, reasons for suicide or substance use could be because of financial factors, environmental factors, um, not having a support system. And so generally, this is reasons why you see this increase in this population, at least based on studies. Okay. What is the so, age group of these white male? Is it, is it tends to be younger? For, well, 45 to we say 45 to 65 is where the, those, that age group is generally. Oh, okay. So it's not generally. Generally. Okay. And, and this is why I hate making general statements because I don't want to neglect the other age groups because one of the I fastest that. growing groups is actually the 18 to 25 year olds, like we talked about. And, um, and we'll know more about that data, let's say, like in a, in, in a couple of years when studies are done and published in peer-reviewed journals. Right. But but we're see, we, we've seen actually with some of the data that has come out that the age group like 15 to 24 has seen the biggest year increase in fatal overdose. And we've seen a death with overdoses with death up to 49% in 2020, just in the 15 to 24-year-olds. Dr. Algai, I got to tell you, this is complicated stuff. I'm it, asking it, questions to get some clear answers. You're I'm not sure. holding back. No, you're not <laughs> holding back. It's just, it's complicated. Um, it is because when you, you know, and I know, I, I know not everyone's a big fan of statistics, but when you like actually pull the data and you look at subgroups, then you do have these subgroups that are also very considered high risk. So, like, I don't want to, when I always talk about suicide and substance use, I always want to make a point of, of Alaska and Indian um, Native Americans. population, Native Americans, because there is, so when you look at statistics, they're disproportionately higher rates of substance use and um, suicide. suicide in this population. When so, you look if at, there are all these different factors, it actually makes the treatment difficult because there's you know you first who's your population and we're you and i have been discussing this for several minutes because it's complex so therefore targeting it is is right it's like always a moving target yeah yeah yeah. another population that's fast growing that's with with opioid related overdose um is the population 55 and older and we saw this huge rise in this population from 1990 to 2019 with this population. Um, well, uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Agahi as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Agahi, are we at the peak of the opioid crisis? I hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> I hope um, so. You know, you know, again, when you look at history, there, you know, I, I sometimes laugh about it with my students that I'm teaching when I teach the substance abuse courses. And I say, there's always going to be job security because if there's not one drug, there's another drug to consider. <laughs> job right? security for you. You know, so I, I, I hope because of this public awareness and this increased you know, PSA education that's going into the field, we, I'm hoping that we are seeing, and all these legislations and restrictions that have been been placed, we are seeing a slowdown, I would say. Thank because goodness. Because there's more awareness. Having said that, I would say be aware of the next drug um, coming up, which um, we're seeing more and more literature on it. And I start seeing this about five years ago, is with legalization of marijuana 
um, the association of we're seeing more and more um, individuals with psychosis that's not going away. By both. psychosis, do you mean is there is there a specific uh, definition for that, or by psychosis you mean like psychotic? Um, meaning psychotic, where they're having delusions, paranoia, hearing Marijuana? Things, things. Yes, yes. It's legal in many jurisdictions. Yes, it is. It is. I'm. I'm not saying. I'm not. I'm not promoting one way or another with legalization yeah, yeah, yeah. of weed. Um, but we know that the THC concentration in a lot of these um, marijuana that's being smoked is much higher. And um, so again, I'm not going to distract from our opioid conversation. Yeah, yeah. But maybe that's a conversation for another time. There, there you go. Um, Hopefully, we won't have that conversation because it hopefully. won't become a because it won't become a crisis. But that's thank you for sharing. That's very interesting. So, aside from hoping that this is a peak of the opioid crisis, do you think it is? And I appreciate you don't have a crystal ball. I'm just I'm, again. There's there's highs and lows. Just like you know, cocaine was the popular in the '80s, and came meth, and came you know opioids. We're we're going to see these patterns. I would say this will the peak will you know at this point we have reached a peak. There's a lot of education that's going into this. Um, as but as long as you know fentanyl is available on the streets and we, um, it's we're going to have the overdoses. But I would say that we are in a position hopefully now that we, because of the education, we could do better job screening. We are seeing more of that. Actually, that is happening now in the hospitals because more, more often for people that overdose, the place they get their treatment is not by their medical provider, it's in the ER. And we're seeing more and more hospitals based on this research and data that's coming out. Hey, when people are coming in, we need to do, we need to do our job is no longer just to treat the symptoms, we need to look at the whole person, like I mentioned, the whole psychosocial aspect, right? So there's this whole movement. Sort of Wait, they're doing that at the ER level? Yeah. Yeah. So we have what's called SBIRD, which is um, it's a framework to use in, in the ER. And they've done some really great research that's come out of it where in places where they've um, piloted this. It's called stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, um, Referral and Treatment. Esbirt, S-B-I-R-T. And it's been around for a while, but now they're seeing how critical using this framework, um, this intervention approach is in the ER where when people are coming in, um, there are ERs that are going to have now designated social workers who are doing the screening in the hospital. Because what we know is if you could, while the person is in the hospital, you address that issue and you connect them with services, the likelihood of them following through is much higher than just treating the symptom and say, all right, peace out. We'll see you next time you come back with the overdose, right? So do you think this um, better awareness and screening and sort of the holistic approach to treating um, uh, opioid uh, victims, uh, is that the way out or are there also discussions in the healthcare community about, I don't know, criminal law, enforcement, um, whatever. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even going to criminal law enforcement because that's a whole nother lecture. It really is. It really <laughs> but, is. I'm just, what's the way out then? But, but I would say, I would say we are finally, the U.S. in particular, uh -huh. we're finally in a place where I believe because of our present um, administration, is more open to looking at what we what I would define as harm reduction approach to treatment. Harm reduction approach, kind of mitigation. Okay. Right. So where you know there's some really great data um, in Europe and like Canada, our neighboring country, who who is I would say kind of they're the guru in harm reduction, where you know their approach is, hey, we know people are going to use, so let's create these environments where it's safe, where they could do it in a safe place, where we could monitor them, observe them, provide them resources and information. Um, to help them eventually get off the drug versus saying, hey, you, you stop the drug or you ain't going to get nothing, right? So the harm reduction approach is saying, let's meet the person where they're at with their addiction and give them a safe place that eventually they will, you know, reduce their use to a point where they decide to become sober. I can see that being a totally partisan hairy issue in America where say, let's say Seattle and San Francisco uh, jump on the bandwagon and are very progressive. And let's say 
gosh, other cities uh, that are more conservative. I, I don't even want to name those cities, but they would say, no way. Um, is, is my, Absolutely. Is, oh, yeah. And I mean, and that's the problem with substance use. It's always been, unfortunately, you know, do you use drugs because you're a bad person, because you, you're weak, so uh-huh. to speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is it because it's a biological reason? And NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, has really pushed and advocated to look at addiction not as a moral problem or a weakness of a human being, but really looking at addiction as a, as a disease. And so, like uh, alcoholism, like alcoholism, right? So uh-huh. just like someone that has, you know, and I work with when I work with my clients, I said, just like someone that has diabetes, just because you have diabetes doesn't make you a bad person. You may have had made some bad choices or it could have been biological or environmental, but you're going to have to deal with diabetes all your life now. It's not something that's going to go away, right? So there are certain regimens that you need to follow. You need to have a healthier diet. You need to exercise. You need to monitor this. Same thing with addiction. Um, you can't just say, okay, you have you know addiction today and you can't have addiction tomorrow. You need to slowly help these individuals by having resources and services available to help them through this process. And you mentioned, you know, Seattle and San Francisco. I actually want to give props to New York. Go New York. I Tell would, me why. <laughs> I, would, I would say they're actually in the forefront of, of all of this because that, that in November, the first safe consumption site in the U.S. where people can use street drugs under medical supervision opened up in New York. And they're actually opening up public health vending machines where they could dispense opioid overdose antidotes, which is, again, it's now becoming available. It's going to be more public. And this is why I'm saying, I think we've reached the peak and we're going to see more, um, not as many overdose because we were making these, um, you know, these overdose antidotes more available to, to patients and they're having a vending machine. So you could just go to a vending machine and get it. Um, I'm, Okay, <laughs> I could have so many questions on that, but I'll stop. Wow, that's that's fascinating. But the other really opt, well, I'm optimistic um, because the present administration, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, just announced 30 million harm reduction grant funding. Is that a lot of money? Is that a lot this of is, money? Oh yeah, this has never been done before. Oh. Never, never has the Obama uh, Obama administration. No, no, never has the government acknowledged that, hey, harm harm reduction is a good thing, right? (laughs) But they're saying, hey, not only are we recognizing, hey, we need to address this overdose and we're going to take it harm reduction approach, right? But we're dedicating funds. So we're not just talking about it and saying this is what needs to be done, but we're actually putting money. Because when there's money, there's action that's taken, right? And this, Kudos to President Biden for doing that. Yeah. So there's about $10 million per year for the next three years. And they very, very much have made it clear harm reduction um, services are to include and expand on evidence-based services that we know could help reduce substance use disorders, um, being able to have syringes, needle exchange programs, um, which we have some states that refuse to have needle exchange programs. Even within the state of California, there are counties that don't allow needle exchange programs or counties that do have needle exchange programs, having safe sex kits, um, education on synthetic opioids, overdose prevention kits that that will include um, naloxone distribution and peer worker engagement. So there's all these components that's part of this SAMHSA funding that's saying, hey, we're going to we're going to basically we know this is a complicated issue. It's not there's not a single answer to this. So we're going to tackle this from multiple levels and be able to address this issue on a, from an education part, but also provide materials and resources that we know there's research and evidence that says these behavior changes can be improved by providing, you know, safe places to inject, to having these, making it available, making, it, you know, um, and, these, and, and the antidotes available to the community and making it more available to receive services. So that's a huge, huge thing. I'm, I'm glad concrete action is being taken and, and, and hope that it has a, a positive, a positive effect. Um, if you wanted our audience, after all of what we've discussed, <laughs> to remember just one point, 
about the opioid crisis, which is multifaceted, what would that one point be? I would say there is hope and that not every single overdose leads to death. Um, I would not be able to live and work in this field of substance abuse and addiction recovery if I knew every client that I work with is going to die. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. That would be, I mean, I, I mean, some people could do that, you know, in hospice care, but it, I, I couldn't. Um, you know, when we look at the research, over 60 to 70% of people do recover and they are able to have an amazing life post-addiction with care, with services. Um, there is that small, unfortunate group that due to various factors, and we talked about all these, you know, the, you know layers associated with addiction that do overdose and, uh, and die. But for the majority of people do recover and being able to work with these individuals from a harm reduction lens is critical to their recovery. Um, so being able to connect people to those services and support them through that process is um, making a difference. That's, that's a wonderful message to close this uh, conversation with, that there is hope. Professor Agahi, thank you so much for educating me. And our listeners, you're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime, hopefully not for another crisis, hopefully for educating on a crisis that has abated. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of The Peel.News.